In this episode of Influencers, Island Records founder, Chris Blackwell. I've always loved music. When I heard that, I said, boy, that's, that's a whole new world. I kind of knew from that moment that that's pretty much what I wanted to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to our guest, Chris Blackwell, founder of Island Records, music producer, business person, entrepreneur, cultural icon, and author of the new book, The Islander. Chris, great to see you. Thank you. Good to see you. So we are here at GoldenEye, the resort that you own in Jamaica. And maybe we should start out here. There's so much to talk about in your book. But since we're here, maybe you could tell us a little bit about GoldenEye. There's, there's so much to talk about. But give us sort of a little bit of history and a summary of the place. Well, uh, GoldenEye used to be a, a donkey racetrack <clears throat> back in the day. And um, Ian Fleming wanted to find somewhere to buy uh, along this part of Jamaica. And my uncle showed him this property. And um, he liked it. And that's how, um, that's how it got bought by him. And he b built a house here. And he built a house, very sort of military type house, very si simple, straightforward. And he was a very di disciplined person in terms of how he, he lived here. He, he would, uh, you know, have his way of what time he got up in the morning, then he'd go for a swim, then he'd come back and he'd have breakfast, then he'd, he'd just go into his bedroom, lock all the windows and write until lunchtime. Break for lunch, and then write again after lunch. And that was pretty much how he, well, it's pretty much how he, he wrote all the James Bond books. Right, so he, he wrote those James Bond books here, and then there were guests like Errol Flynn and Noel Coward when you were a little boy, and, and then this place is, became, came into possession of your family, your mother, and then you've taken it over and turned it into a, a very singular resort, right? Well, what, what happened to it was, was when... Um, Ian Fleming passed, it was being left to his son. <clears throat> and then his son passed a, a few years after that. <clears throat> and uh, my mother had been looking after the place, waiting for when his son was going to take over. And um, when he did pass, then she rang me and asked me if I would try and buy it, because she really loved the property should swim here every day, even though her own house was on the hill about five miles away. And um, that's really what she wanted to do. And so she asked me if I, I, I would buy it. And I said, yes. I didn't really know how much it was going to cost. And then when I found out what it was going to cost, I thought, mm, well, I don't know. Uh, I'll see if, if I can get to uh, Bob Marley to buy it because I just paid him a big royalty check and um, <clears throat> he said he'd go and have a look at it sometime and 
but he didn't think it was going to be his kind of thing. And um, so that's really what happened. So I ended up with it. Bob actually, you know, sort of basically provided the finance to, to buy, for me to buy it initially, and then I took, took it over. That's just amazing. I mean, there's so many personalities here. You're just talking about Bob Marley being kind of a partner in this. And of course, you were the person really who brought him onto the world stage. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I want to sort of talk a little bit more about this place just quickly that you've had so many amazing guests stay here. You know, this is a business uh, network platform. And so the business people focus on that a little bit. You've got Paul Allen's come here and Steve Jobs. Um, Elon Musk, did he actually, Elon Musk actually make it here? He didn't make it here. He, he, he landed at the Ian Fleming International Airport, which is five minutes away. And he was going to be here, but he had some appointment that he had to do in Florida. So he went straight on. So he hadn't been here yet. But Steve Jobs had his birthday here? He had his birthday, 29th birthday here. Amazing. And Paul Allen came on, on his giant boat, right? Yes, a couple of times, a couple of times. Yeah. So switching over to, to Island Records, and you discovered so many important artists. We mentioned Bob Marley. Of course, there's Steve Winwood, and, and later you too. How do you know, Chris, if an artist has what it takes to become a star? Well, you don't know. You have an instinct, really, of... Uh, how you feel, how you feel basically what they are like, and you get a feel of them. And also, you know, they would have, uh, ma uh, in some cases, a, a manager. In some cases, they don't have a manager. <clears throat> if they had somebody who was a really good manager, that was always a, a key and important thing, because my role was to work with them to pick the music in a way to, in some cases, be involved a bit with the music. <clears throat> but the manager was somebody who really needed to be responsible for the artist's life, in a way, in, in business. So a lot, a lot would really depend on that. So you um, really put Bob Marley and others, Bob Marley and the Whalers, other reggae groups, out onto the national, international stage, I should say, what, what is it about reggae, as opposed to some other international music, that was so compelling to the world? I mean, in other words, why did reggae click when you worked with some other African acts, and they didn't resonate the same way? Well, for a start, um, reggae is pretty much in English, and a lot of the African uh, artists... Uh, they didn't speak English, mm. <clears throat> so that would be part of it. But um, I think that would be the main part, actually. Interesting. What is it about um, artists and authenticity? You know, some, some people are posers, right? Some people are the real deal. I, is that ultimately really important for an artist to be an authentic individual? Well, it's... It's, I, I sort of operate on my instinct, you know. <clears throat> so it's, that, that means you're sort of really getting a, a, a feel for what you feel that artist is interested in, what they're about, 
if you feel you're on the same track uh, or if you're on different odds. And, 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 and it's all those elements which, which are important. But you need to get a feel, is this something that you're, 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 you're going to be able to work with and, and get along with and have pretty much the same direction you're aiming. So I, I would say that, that that would be the main thing. I mean, this is a huge question, Chris, but when you started in the music business, it was very different than today, obviously. What are some of the big changes? I mean, obviously, there's digital and all that, but are there things that are very different and are there things that are very similar? <clears throat> well, how I started, because I'm, I'm a fan of music, for a start. So the, the first bit of music, first bit of music that I actually went in a studio with <clears throat> was a, a, a band, a band which had been imported from Bermuda and worked at the Half Moon Hotel. And I used to teach water skiing at the Half Moon Hotel. And one evening I was there and they, they were playing and I guess I'd probably had a couple of drinks and, and I said to them, well, I'd love to record you guys. I knew nothing about recording anything at all, you know. And they said, yeah, we'd love to record them. So then a couple of days went by and then one of the guys said, uh, remember you said something about recording? And I said, yeah, yeah, yes, I'll do it, I'll do it, definitely, I'm sorry, you know. So the next day I booked a, a, a Volkswagen van, van, drove in from Montego Bay into Kingston, <clears throat> and I knew the person who had a studio there, so I'd all called him ahead of time and booked the studio. And we arrived, and the band went into the, in the studio, and I went into the, what's called the control room, and I sat there next to the owner, and the, the band played the first tune, and then when it was finished, they looked up at me, and I didn't, I, I didn't, I didn't know what to, you know, where I was coming or going, you know. I was just kind of excited to be part of it, you know. And uh, and the the uh, the person who who was actually the leader of the band, who was blind, he said, oh, "Chris, would you like us? Would you like us to do it again?" And I said, "Yes." So. That was it, you know. When I said yes, and he played it again, I kind of knew from that moment that that's pretty much what I wanted to do all my life. What is, what has it been like working with you two? What is Bono like as a person? And what makes him connect with audiences so well? Well, he's an extraordinary guy, incredible talent. Uh, a natural leader. He's just a brilliant, brilliant person. And his whole band, you know, they were just a unit. Strong, really strong unit. And very importantly, like I mentioned earlier, they had, he had a great manager. Because, you know, again, there's so much that goes on, especially when you're starting, where you don't have any clout and you know, you're wanting to do somewhere and people don't let you to do it because they don't feel it's the right thing. But, so it's, it's really important that you, that you have a manager who really you're in sync with. And they were very fortunate to have a really excellent manager, a man called Paul McGuinness. Right. 
are you surprised that Bono has used his fame to um, further political causes or really just you know environmental causes? And do you think that's the right thing for someone to do, a rock musician? Well, he's 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 somebody who thinks big. You know, he really does. He's he's a brilliant, a brilliant guy. You know. And he really thinks big, works hard, uh, and is a, a natural leader. You know. I want to ask you about another one of your, your big groups, which is Bob Marley, and we're again in his, in his home country. Did you ever think that Bob Marley and the Whalers were going to be as big as they got? And why does it continue, why does Bob Marley continue to be so popular today? Well, I think his songs are really great songs. You know, they're not normal dance songs or, or you know, songs just to dance to or, you know, they're songs which have a real purpose to them. And um, he's, he's, he's got a, a, just a, a great, great sense, you know. He, he just had a really great sense of how to put together his songs and how to record them, really. He, he, he just, he, he's a natural, he was, he was gifted, you know, again, a natural leader. You never wanted to be photographed with him particularly. What, why is that? Why? Because, because when I met him, I just knew that he was somebody who was going to be really important. And I didn't want to be, you know, the, the kind of white manager type guy who was hanging around and claiming what they'd hoped happen or something like that, you know, because they did, he didn't need that. He had it all himself. He knew, what, he, he knew what he wanted to do and he knew how to get there. What is your take, Chris, on streaming music and all these um, new ways of distributing music, such as, of course, Spotify, but also Apple Music and all the rest of them? Uh, well, in that case, like anything, sometimes it's great and sometimes not so great. You know, that, 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 that's all. But the, it's, it's, it, seems, it seems so, it's so different now to how it used to be 50 years ago. I mean, completely different because you can you can get anything. You don't have to go through the whole process. This is a, an artist now who's wanting to get their music across. They don't have to go through all the process of going and then get somebody to take it to a, a DJ and take the DJ to you know a, a club and you know all these different things. You'd have to go over go over this long process, and, and then you also had. A, a record company telling them what to do, etc. Nowadays, nowadays somebody can just do it at home. They can make their own music at, at home, and and they can get it available, get it get it out on online. And the next thing you know, it's well, you know what? what for me, what changed everything was that song Gangnam Style. Do you remember mm, Gangnam Style? Sure do. Gangnam Style. Gangnam Style. Yeah. When I heard that, I said, boy, that's, that's a whole new world. 
I think that got, for a time, it was the number one watched video on YouTube. I mean, billion plus yes. uh, views. Um, right. They never had anything vaguely like that before. Right, and he was just came from nowhere. He didn't work his way up through the business kind of thing, no, right? No, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. So you've done other things besides the music business. We've talked a little bit about GoldenEye, but you've done film. You have rum. I can see on your rum T-shirt. <laughs> but so, how does an expertise in one area, say music, translate into you trying to do things in other fields? Did and it, did it work for you, like trying to go into the movie business? Um. I didn't want to go into the music business, but I did want to make a movie. I was in, the, I was in music starting in Jamaica, and I stayed with that, and I still, I'm still involved with that. <clears throat> and um, so, you know, through that you meet a lot, of, a lot of people, musicians, people on the street and things like that. <clears throat> and um, there was this, um, there was this, uh, area of, um, of, of Jamaica, east, east of uh, Kingston, which was a, a, a beach, a, lo a, long, a long beach, but it was very, you know, sort of far away people went to it. <clears throat> and it was called Health, Healthshire Beach. And I went there with a good friend of mine. And um, he introduced me to this guy, Countryman, and who was an extraordinary guy. He was a fisherman there. He lived in the, in the little house, about this size. You know, he and his wife had a little house. And, um, and that, was, that was where they lived, on, on the beach. And, and he, was, he had an incredible brain. He, he, he grew up half Indian, half uh, African descent, mm -hmm. and was not happy at home. And he left home at a four or five years old, and lived himself in the jungle, in the swamps, and grew up himself, fed himself, grew up uh, incredible, really, and started the fishing and became a sort of successful fisherman. And then when I first met him, he lived in this little house, and his wife was in the house, and he was, you know, kind of thriving. And he was an incredible character. He, he was somebody, you were kind of amazing that you say, how can this guy get to where he has, you know, in a, in a way? Because he was a successful fisherman. You know. So we decided to make a film. That was really it. Right. Called Countryman, you know. And we want, because we really thought he should, he should really be filmed. And the, the thing that triggered it was that one day we were driving out of the, the beach away, mm -hmm. and Countryman had wanted to give us a message which we'd forgotten when we left. And we were driving out, and Bubba looked out of the car, and he'd been running. He'd been running for like about, I, I don't know, a mile and a half or something, mm. something like that to catch up. We hadn't seen huh. him before. And, and I thought, boy, the, we should be going to film this guy. It's unbelievable. Right. That he, that he's just unbelievable. <clears throat> and that's really how that happened. So that was some, some film work you did. And, and shifting gears, I want to ask you about South Beach, because yeah. you went there when it was completely down and out. 
I mean, it had its heyday back in the Art Deco era, and then it descended, and you were there, and you saw the potential. What, what did you see when you went to South Beach when it was like that? Well, I couldn't understand how it was such a dump. And I couldn't understand that nobody was going there. The only people who were there were people who basically had pretty much gone to live there for their last days, in a, in a sense, you know, they would sit on the veranda and, and, that, and that, that was it. There was, there was nothing happen, and, and happening. And yet the beach was incredible. Now, this I found out later. I found out that the beach had only recently been repaired and made into a beautiful beach. So before that, it was a terrible beach. So nobody went to South Beach. So nobody would even go. If somebody said you want to go, so nobody would go. go, Because they'd never seen what had happened there. From my eyes, I saw this beach, which is incredible. I also saw the fact that it, it, there was a, a, a part of the U.S. which had its own sort of character. And, uh, and I thought, well, there's something one can do with it. We can sort of build this back. And, um, I, you know, it's not, 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 not a, a, a sort of construction personal thing, but it was that just what I felt, you know. <clears throat> I'd gone there on the trip to see a, a girl who was a, a singer from Detroit who was going to do a video, and she was going to do a video in, in Miami, and that's why I'd gone on this trip. And when I was on this trip and I saw her, what was an amazing chance was I noticed that the person who was helping her on her clothing for the, for the video, she was somebody who was like, in my word, the name, a, a kind of a, a goddess in, in England. She'd come out of England. Uh, her name was Barbara Hulaniki, mm -hmm. and she had, she had started a business in, in London which had been huge, mm -hmm. and, um, and then she moved to Brazil, and then she moved from Brazil, and she was back in, in Miami Beach. Right. And I, I knew what she had done right. creatively, and I knew she was somebody that, if I asked her to help me fix up the hotels, there's a good chance she would probably do it because she, you, you just knew that she had a talent. From I mean, it's sort of like if you think about it, Chris, you, know, you identified that as sort of an underappreciated asset, if you will, but it's, it's similar with Grace Jones or Tom Waits, isn't it? I mean, and, and what is it that you see in these things that maybe other people don't see, in these people, in these places? Um, I, don't, I don't know. I just, it's just my spirit, I guess. It's, I feel it. I don't know. You can't bottle it or sell it to other people? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, not really. Not really. But, I mean, Tom Waits, you just have to spend five minutes with Tom Waits and you, you just want to spend the rest of your life talking to him. Yeah, he's such a brilliant guy. Yeah, he really is some kind of genius. Yeah. Not maybe widely appreciated by 
everyone in America, but definitely a, a genius. So how has business been going here at GoldenEye during COVID, and what are you looking to do here going forward? Well, um, COVID has been a difficult period. It's particularly difficult for the staff. So we instituted a system where um, we would keep the staff and their, their uh, salaries, their wa wages would, would go in line with how many people were coming and how many weren't coming. <clears throat> so it wasn't something where we, we let the people go and they didn't have, an, have a job until everything came back. We more let, let them work work with us, and those people came, so it would lift back, and, and they're back again. You see what I mean? So it, it was a very clever idea. It was my girlfriend's idea. So, in other words, instead of laying people off, their salaries would vary with the occupancy rate. Exactly. And they they were okay with that. They were very happy with that because the alternative. The alternative, they would be going home and doing nothing. Right. And then how is business now? Are we back to pre-COVID levels here? Not yet. Not yet. But I think we're getting there. Right, right. What about the economy of, of Jamaica? How are, I mean, you've seen, you know, boy, all these decades, all this history. How would you assess the country these days? <clears throat> well... I just know it from the beginning because when, when, when I was a little child, it was all about bananas and coconuts, you know. And, and then when I was a little old, older than that, it was, you started to hear music and sound systems. <clears throat> and I, I'd always loved music. I'd loved music because my father used to play music at deafening volume in the house that we had. You know, and but the music he played was Wagner, you know, Puccini played all the classical music, which was great opportunity to really hear that not, not many people were playing that music, and he played it, as I said, definitely loud. So I, I, I sort of, I don't know, I, I think that's really what, what got me started with music. And not that I was thought that I would ever have anything to do with producing any opera or anything like that. But that's just how I got, how I got started, I think. Right. Have you ever thought, um, Chris, about your legacy, uh, about how you'd like people to think about you? Not really. Not, 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 I mean, not, not really, hopefully, that, that you know, that... Hopefully that they think positively. <laughs> I like that. And, and final question, Chris. I, so tell us about Blackwell Fine Jamaican Rum. What's going on with that? A friend of mine in New York suggested, Chris, you should go in the rum business, you know, because you're so tied into Jamaica and rum is so much with Jamaica. And, and um, I said, you know something? That's a good idea because I was supposed to grow up in the rum business. Because when, when I was a child, my family were very wealthy at that time. Things went south. It was run by two brothers and they quarreled and, and, it, and, and it went south. So when I was 
initially as a child, it was thought that I presumed that, you know, what I'd be doing would be go, go to school, learn this, and come back and, and be in the rum business. But when I came back for the rum business, there was no rum business, it was gone. So, um, so I thought, well, that's an idea, you know. And, uh, and, and so it, it, it was Richard Kirschenbaum, his name was, and it was, it was, it was his idea. And then I came, so I came back to Jamaica. I went to the same company that used to run my, my family's rum business. Is that Ray and Nephew? Ray and Nephew, that's yes. right. Oh, I know that brand, yeah. yeah. Strong stuff. That's right. So I went to them and, and I, I, I gave them a little idea of what, what I would like in, in the flavor of the rum. <coughs> and, um, and they've been making it for me. They're, they're making it for me still. So it's kind of full circle. You started out thinking maybe you were going to go into the rum business from your child. And now, all these years later, you're in the rum business. I'm in the rum business, that's right. Along with many other things. Chris Blackwell founder of Island Records and owner of GoldenEye. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you. <laughs> You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Serwer.